I ran across a list recently of the 50 greatest breakthroughs since the wheel. I found it interesting to note that the majority of this list broke down into four basic categories. Transportation, health and wellness, economics, and communication. Upon reflection, it stands to reason that as mankind has developed over time, that these are the areas that would enable him to live comfortably and to overcome obstacles. Under transportation, we can think of the steam engine back in the 1700s. We can think of the wheel back whenever that was uh, created many millennia ago. The car, the, the airplane, health and wellness, there's pasteurization, there's um, uh, plumbing, there's uh, penicillin. Under economics, paper money was one of the 50 greatest breakthroughs. And under communication, the printing press, electricity, which expands into other areas besides communication, semiconductor electronics, paper, the internet, the personal computer, the telephone, the alphabet, the telegraph, the mechanized clock, radio, photography, the Gregorian calendar, and the television. These are all on the list, the generally accepted list of the 50 greatest breakthroughs since the wheel. And these, there are 14 of them that are specifically related to communication. Last week, Pastor Adrian concluded his message on doctrines that are creeping into the churches of God as a result of our misguided love for this present evil age. And he noted that the changes this postmodern world has brought. Recalling, if you recall, that postmodernism breaks down the walls of truth and believes that each person determines what is truth to them specifically. Of course, this is a very simplified synopsis of his message, so if you haven't heard it, I, I encourage you to listen to it. But he made a statement that encapsulated this belief system, and that is postmodernism is a fight for language. And in order to deconstruct or to break down truth, we start by altering what we say and how we say it. And for instance, statements or words long accepted as truth now are considered bigotry and closed-mindedness. Society has changed over time, and that has always affected God's people. We have issues to deal today that we deal with in today's postmodern society that Christians in times past simply never, ever had to deal with, never had to think twice about. Turn with me as we start to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. Read it first in the King James Version. Second Timothy chapter 2. And some, some of the, the examples you brought out last week of items we never had to deal with before is the term non-homosexual. That was never, never thought we would ever call what is good and godly and straight and normal as something that is non, non-evil. Which it almost seems like a misnomer to even consider that. Second Timothy chapter two, verse nineteen tells us 
Nevertheless, let's go back to verse 17. And their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who, are, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overflow, they overthrow the faith of some. So Paul was helping Timothy go through some, some doctrinal error that was going on. And his words to Timothy in verse 19 say, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone whose names, who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The new, the new Living Translation puts it this way. But God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone. God's truth never changes. We've seen how God's truth, how truth has, has changed over time. We saw that last week. Jan, uh, Deacon Jan talked a little bit about that in his explanation of hell and how we've come to use Greek philosophy to interpret scripture and to, to interpret truth outside of, outside of scripture even. But God's truth has never changed. It is as strong as a foundational stone. It is the one thing that we can hang our hat on every single day. But how God communicates with man has changed over time. How God communicates his message has changed. So this afternoon, let's take a look. I'd like to take a look. It'll be a shortened version of the sermon because we do have a lot of events today on our expanded Sabbath. I'd like to take a brief look at how God has communicated with man throughout history. And what we will see is that while his methods change as society changes and as society has developed, what he communicates never changes. And by the end of this message, what I hope you will see, we will see, is that despite a continually changing postmodern world and changing methods of communication today, our God and his message is as sure today as it has always ever been. And knowing how he communicates today will help us not be tossed about and carried with every wind of doctrine, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. So let's jump into this in Genesis. Let's go right back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. Because there are multiple ways that God has communicated with man over time. Let's go right back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3. And we know that God physically made Adam and then created Eve out of the rib of Adam. And he taught Adam. But it's interesting here, as they proceeded through their life, and how it's described here in Genesis, let's look at verse 8. We know that this falls on the heels of the serpent tempting Eve. And in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called Adam and said to him, Where are you? And we know Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then, for time's sake, we won't continue with the rest of the story. But the point there is that this was a one-on-one relationship that God had intimately with Adam and Eve. So much so that it's described as him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It was just almost like he had manifested himself into something that they could see we were obviously weren't there to describe the details, but here as it's described for us, it was one-on-one. It was one-on-one. God and Adam, God and Eve, God and Adam and Eve. So initially, God dealt directly one-on-one with people. And we can see this 
throughout the, the initial accounts of Adam and Eve. But it continued like this with others. Recall the story of Abraham, who was visited by Yahweh and the other two angels and served them a meal. We won't go into, we won't read that one specifically. We know that Jacob wrestled with the Lord, wrestled with, with uh, Yahweh all night. So much so that it took all night for, for Yahweh to finally clip his hip and, and get him, uh, humble him with the, the, the hip issue. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3 and see again how God dealt directly with people. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses, verse 1, was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock into the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great light, and why the bush doesn't burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And God said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid, afraid to look upon God. God here began a direct relationship, one-on-one, -on -one with Moses. And we'll see later on that it, this also extends into other forms of communication. But initially here with Moses, like he did with Jacob, like he did with Adam, or Adam, like he did with Abraham, he had a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with Moses. And I might add that this was not Moses' interpretation. This wasn't Moses saying, the Lord spoke to and revealed this to me. This was a direct one-on-one -on -one relationship. God spoke directly with him. We could go into read other examples, but let's continue on. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. As you turn there, you'll recall the story of Saul, the, king, the first king of Israel, relied a lot on the, the influence of the prophet Samuel to guide him. And Samuel had died, and Saul became lost. We pick up the account in verse 3, 1 Samuel 28. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. This was something that was went without saying. For God-fearing people, there were no mediums or spiritists. It was something that was, that was absolutely against God's commands. But verse 4, Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. And then he continues on with the story where they called up the, the soothsayer. It's a, it's a message all in and of itself. But it's interesting here that the writer... First Samuel states that when Saul went looking for answers, God didn't answer it. And he didn't answer it in three of the accepted forms of communication. Through dreams, through the Urim, and through prophets. So let's take a few minutes 
now to dig into this a little bit and see what he's really talking about here. Because remember, there were no Hebrew scriptures at the time. There was no Bible to pull out. There was no scrolls to unravel. But God did find a way to communicate. Let's go to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. Among the most notable people that God spoke with in dreams were Joseph and Daniel. Here we're going to look at an example here of Joseph. Genesis chapter 41. You recall the history of Joseph being sold by his brothers to Potiphar. The, old, the whole story of Potiphar's wife setting Joseph up and he become, goes to prison. Interprets dreams for a couple of gentlemen that are in prison. Years later, as, as events happened, the baker, I believe, who was released, was in discussions with Pharaoh and said, there's a, there's a fellow back in jail that I remember years ago used to interpret dreams. Whatever he said, he was always, he was always spot on. So we'll pick up the, the account in verse 14 of Genesis 41. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. He shaved, he changed his clothing, and he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream and that you can interpret it. That's got to make you feel pretty good. When the king king of Egypt, when the Pharaoh says, I hear great things about you. you I hear you can interpret these dreams. Joseph's answer, it's not me. I don't interpret dreams. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. So Joseph first of all, points all the glory and the honor to God. But more so, we note that God was communicating not to Joseph, but he was communicating to Pharaoh through Joseph. That's what Joseph says here. It wasn't God gave me the answer, and I'm going to tell you. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace through me, through the dream, through through assisting me in interpreting these dreams. So God was speaking, God speaks to others in the case here to the dreams of people. He allows, he allows uh, the dreams that Joseph, have, that Joseph had to give Pharaoh a specific message that he needed Pharaoh to understand. Joseph's reputation obviously preceded him and Pharaoh's ears were open because of what his, his, wise, men were, and his wise men were saying. But Joseph here gave full and complete credit to God because it was God who was communicating to Pharaoh to the dreams that he gave Joseph. We can take time, if we had time, we'd go to Daniel and see other, other examples of, of God speaking in dreams to Daniel. We know that Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in the Lord of Israel. We know that he had issues later on, but at one point he did acknowledge the Lord God of Israel through the example of Daniel and through all the, the interpreting of the dreams that Daniel gave him. Let's go to Exodus 28. We'll pick up on a little bit of details on this thing that the writer that Samuel had written in his in his first excerpt there that we read that this thing called the Europe. And it is an interesting, it's actually a fascinating study that we'll probably uh, probably cover in a sermon at some point in the future, because there's a lot to cover about the Urim and the Thummim. But we pick up a little bit of details here in Exodus 28 about what this Urim was. 
And if we, again, we don't have time to go into all of these details, but Exodus 28 covers a lot of what the priestly garments were. God expected the priests to wear as he was developing his system of worship. We know the ephod and the breastplate that were worn by, by the priests. But let's jump down to verse 30 of Exodus 28. Let's go back to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart, where he goes into the holy place, as a memorial before the Lord continually. And ye shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. What this Urim and the Thummim were, if you're not aware, are two stones that had, uh, we don't know exactly what they were, but they uh, had either messages on them, and it was almost like you you would cast them down, and if one side was up and one side down, it would be a yes or a no. And we'll go into, when we get some time, we'll go into more details, because uh, it is a fascinating study. But it was a way for God to communicate to the people through the priests. So God used the priests, was, and we see here the, the, the command here, the, the explanation of what was going on here, that they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So it was something specific to the priesthood in the Old Testament times, that they had this Urim and Thummim that they could, when they were unsure, when God, when God wasn't clear, they could cast down this Urim and the Thummim, and God would reveal his intentions to the, to the priesthood. We'll see an example of this when we go to Ezra chapter 2. Let's go to Ezra chapter 2. And again, I'd love to go into much deeper detail, and we, put, we will likely later on in a future message about this Urim and the Thummim. But Ezra chapter 2, again, as the people are being allowed back into Jerusalem after Cyrus of Persia defeats the Babylonians and allows God's people to go back to their, their homeland and to establish their own system of worship. Verse 63 has a little statement here that says, the, government, the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things until a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. So while they were setting up this system of worship, the people, without the presence of a priest, there was some, they weren't sure what to do. So rather than jump ahead and commit something that could have been sin and make a decision on their own, they decided to wait because what they knew was acceptable practice was the priest had this Urim and the Thummim, and if the priest couldn't give it a direction, a positive, a definite directive, he could use this Urim and the Thummim to find out God's intention. So this Urim and the Thummim was used for a way for God to communicate to his people through the priesthood. So again, it wasn't to communicate to the priests, necessarily. It was to communicate to the people through the priests. It was a form of communication that God used in those days. And we'll see another a, a, a bend on that uh, in, a, in a few minutes. We also read dreams, the Urim, and it told us prophets, that God communicates to the prophets. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we'll see God communicating through prophets. We previously noted that God communicated directly with Moses. That was a way that he communicated 
to Moses, was directly to him. Well, after the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, we pick up in verse 18 of Exodus 20. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So not only did, Moses, did God communicate directly with Moses one-on-one, he communicated through Moses as a prophet to his people. In part because the people themselves were afraid. But God allowed, God permitted, in this instance, to speak through Moses to the people. And we know that much of the Hebrew scriptures involve God speaking to his people through prophets. The phrase is used innumerable times, Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And in these instances, we we know why these scriptures were canonized. Because it was God directly speaking through a prophet to his people. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. See another example of speaking through a prophet that had a profound impact on King David. This, of course, is the conclusion of the story of David and his sin with Bathsheba, and the follow-up punishment after breaking God's law with Bathsheba, after arranging for the death of her husband, for the murder of her husband. And in verse 12, because David was off off track at this point, he needed needed some guidance to get back right with God. Verse 12 says, or verse 1 of chapter 12, 2 Samuel chapter 12 said, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. So at this point, he wasn't going to speak directly with David. It seemed like he had in the past. There's examples of him speaking directly with David. But in this case, he wasn't going to speak directly with David. He sent Nathan the prophet to speak with David. And we know the, the story here where Nathan explains, Nathan comes up with a parable, much like our young people did a, a great job with last week. And I, over the course of last week and the last night, I got some examples of of uh, what a great job the kids did creating their own parables last week. But Nathan amounted to a bit of a parable here for David to, which he ended up seeing the light and understanding exactly what he did. When we see verse 5, David's anger became greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that the man who has done this shall surely die. So David saw, he saw the, the gravity of the situation when he saw it placed in parable form. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, so again, this is God communicating through Nathan to David, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. So again, Nathan's not speaking himself, he's taking God's message to David. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. So again, this is, this is Nathan stepping back, clearing his mind, and just almost allowing God to speak through him. He's giving him his God-specific message. This wasn't Nathan saying, God said this and God said this. He's using the, 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 single, the singular form here of the word I. 
I anointed you. He's bringing God's message direct to David. And after having it all explained, we drop down to verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So David understood. So this was a positive use of God using a prophet to speak to another individual. Sometimes it's individuals. In this case, it was a specific individual to get his message across. And interestingly enough, as we said, it was someone who God had spoken directly with in previous times. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7. And we'll use, just take a quick look at how it's worded here. A single example of how the prophets of Scripture communicated. Jeremiah chapter 7. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in these gates, in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And we can continue down with in, in time, but if we, if we look at all of the prophets, systematically they all speak, Thus says the Lord. Because they were speaking on behalf of God. When the people heard Jeremiah speaking, they weren't thinking this was some crazy kook named Jeremiah. They understood this to be God. This was, this was words right from God. Thus says the Lord God, do this. And when God fulfilled what he said through Jeremiah, it, it lent, lent credence to the fact that Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of God. And we can note, as the, the, the use of the, the inclusion of these prophets in the canonization was because they simply stepped aside and let God speak through them. Because that was one way that God communicated was through prophets. Specific men chosen as intermediaries between God and his people to allow his message to flow through to them. And we know that at least a third of the the Hebrew scriptures are prophecy. Casting of lots. Let's go to Jonah chapter 1. This is a a bending of the of the Urim and the Thuma, Jonah chapter one, because in the absence of priests, because remember the Urim and the Thuma was only used by the priesthood. In the absence of priests, in the absence of dreams, which is God's direct communication, in the absence of one-on-one communication, like He had with Abraham, like He had with Adam, like He had with Jacob, in the absence of prophets. God has answered people for his benefit and, and or for their benefit through the use of casting lots. And we pick up the start of the account of Jonah in verse 4, chapter 1. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. We know that <coughs> the introduction of Jonah, Jonah fled, he, he was running away from God's commission. And the mariners in verse 5 were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And they threw cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise and call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So again, they're all reaching out to their own gods, and their gods are not answering them. 
there's this one individual, Jonah, who is pretty sure he knows why this is going on. It's, this is his fault. He's down there sleeping, and he's pretty calm about things. So they go down and say, this wasn't specifically them looking to the Lord God of Israel. They were just looking to Jonah to look to his God. And he hadn't reached out to his God. So all of theirs had failed thus far. So they asked him to look upon his God. And they said, verse 7, to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now in this case, they weren't really looking to the Lord God of Israel to answer, but God used this to communicate with them that Jonah was the guy. There are several examples in Scripture where people were looking to God for the casting of lots. And it's certainly a, a form here that God has used to communicate with people, to get his message across, that they needed to know that Jonah was the guy, because God obviously had a specific mission and a specific lesson for Jonah that required him to be thrown overboard. And we see many examples of this throughout Scripture, because people, as we heard last week, had a need to determine truth or the will of God. In the pre-modern world, as we heard last week, that truth came through revelation. So people were looking for God to reveal himself through dreams, through, through the casting of lots. So in part and parcel of what Pastor Ian talked about last week, we see this coming to fruition here with the pre-modern world. That even outside of, of the truth of God, they developed this casting of lots. And God actually jumped in and used this in this particular case to communicate with people. Then, as we covered few weeks back in our youth studies, God went quiet for about 400 years, the intertestamental period. There was no communication with mankind. There's no evidence of, of, any, of any writings. There's no evidence of any prophets. Preparing the world for the arrival of his son. They recall we covered in our youth study how Malachi and John the Baptist connected, bookended basically this, this silent era or this intertestamental period to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And it's clear in the New Testament period that God communicated through his son, Jesus Christ. I don't think we'd be sitting here if we, if we didn't think that that was the case. I mean, we could read front to back the New Testament, the Gospels, and see how God communicated to his people through Jesus Christ. Of that, we're sure. The remainder of the New Testament was written by those who were first-hand witnesses of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at a couple of examples here. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So we have four detailed gospel accounts of how Christ communicated as a man, was sent to this earth, communicated individually, in groups, but one-on-one as a physical man with his people. In Acts chapter 1, Verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit to come on Pentecost, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, 
and to the end of the earth. So here the apostles, who had grown up, so to speak, in the, in the presence of Christ, were witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was their message. God communicated through them. We have, we have their, their account right here in front of us in electronic form today and in paper form because of those other communication forms that developed over the, over the course of history. And we have their words before us now. And that was their message. And their specific message, as given to them by Christ himself, was they were to be witnesses of him. You saw me, you saw me live, you saw me die, and you see me now in resurrected form. Witness that. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Because a lot of what is covered here in scriptures penned by the Apostle Paul. And even though he was a first-hand witness of Christ's earthly ministry, unfortunately on the wrong side, he spent significant time under Christ's direct guidance. And we see him talk about that here in Galatians chapter 1, when he, to the Galatian people, to the Galatian church, had to establish the foundation that he was an apostle. Verse 11 says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, and how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond my many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were in the, who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So he was again in, in, in discussion with Christ in some far off far off setting in Arabia, getting personally taught and having his mind redirected by Christ. And this was there was this was direct time with Christ for those who would be tasked with preserving his word. So the those who were called as witnesses had one-on-one -on -one personal time with Jesus Christ while he was here on this earth in physical form. And then Paul later, when Christ spent that time with him in Arabia, that they had one-on-one -on -one personal time so they could be true witnesses of that message. So where does that leave us today? We have radio. We have television. We have books. We have paper Bibles. We have the Internet we have blogs, we have Facebook, we have multiple churches of all accounts, multiple types of evangelists. And I'm sure, being the non-techie that I am, there's things that I don't even know are out there that can have an influence over us. There are many examples of people who claim that God has spoken through them with a specific, special message. Perhaps by their own volition, they are sure they are perhaps the 21st century apostle. Perhaps they're one of the two witnesses. Perhaps they have a calling to lead God's people to the place of safety. Or perhaps they've even designated themselves as possessing a specific gift that we need. Where does that leave us? That sounds that can sound kind of convincing. That God God has spoken directly with people in the past. God has has wrestled with Jacob. Perhaps God is with the, a 21st century apostle. Perhaps there's one guy that God's working through on this earth. It sounds, sounds plausible. 
We're surrounded by a lot of moving parts, various forms of communication, and people with more time on their hands than we have to concoct various winds of doctrine. How can we stay sure-footed? Let's go to what Andrew read in Hebrews chapter 1. There are two scriptures I would like to read as we bring the, we wind this down in, in ten minutes or so. To cut through some of this stuff that looks like it... And that sounds kind of believable. Hebrews chapter 1. God, who at various times, we're picking up in verse 1, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. We also know he spoke in dreams. He, had, he spoke directly. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through the Urim and the Thummim. He spoke in the casting of lots. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. That seems pretty clear. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, and the upholding and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Is there anyone else that we had that we would be better listening to than the one that has sat at the right at the right hand of God? The one that has been appointed heir of all things. The one that has been in complete unity with the Father for time immemorial, who is the expressed image of His glory. Two weeks ago, Brother Jan spoke on the doctrine of hell, and in his message he pointed out that false, this false doctrine and many others are the results of relying on Greek philosophy to interpret Scripture or to set doctrine. This doesn't say to abide by Greek philosophy. This says to listen to Christ. That he has spoken to us through his Son. God speaks to us through his Son. The Word, the Logos. And has preserved his words and teachings through those that Christ personally interacted with while here on this earth. Now I'm not saying, I am not saying that God will not work directly like he has in times past with an individual. I don't think I've got the pay grade or the authority to say that that will never happen. But I will assure you of this, based on what we just read, that anything we hear, anything we read, and anything we see should be judged against Scripture. Because God in these last days has spoken to us by His Son. And on that we can count. That we can count. There was an excellent exchange between Pastor Ramakan and an audience member a few weeks ago at the Are We Lost seminar. And I, I don't know if I mentioned it here. I've mentioned it in passing to, to people. It was fascinating for those who were actually paying attention. It was fascinating. Because there he was in front of 200, 250 people, I don't know the exact number, by himself on a stage representing truth and being told by this individual at the end, and she was not doing it, I don't believe, out of malice. She, she, this is her beliefs. That he was wrong. And she, he, she was pointing out all the mistakes. That he was full of errors. How many of us 
How would we feel when we were up in front of 250 people by yourself on a stage in front of many brothers and sisters that respect you being told you're wrong? How, how, how would we react? I learned more from watching him react as much as hearing what he said. His response, it was without fear. It was without embarrassment. It was without, and he wasn't unsure of himself. He calmly, simply, and rationally pointed her to Scripture. Whenever she went off track, he would drag her back. Pointedly saying to her, if we're going to talk about we need to talk point Scripture. Show me where you're saying this. And she couldn't, because it wasn't there. Now, it was what she was taught. We really don't believe, as, 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 as aggressive as she seemed to be, she really, this was in her heart. This is what she had always been taught. So she was bringing this up. And she had the courage to bring this up. That was, that was impressive that she had that courage to go in front of 250 people and disagree with Pastor Ramakai. But he was without fear. He was without, he was without embarrassment. And he was sure-footed. Whatever you say, he said, we need to find in Scripture. The amazing thing as well was that he didn't even need to feel the need to know it all himself. He couldn't find some of the things. So he was reaching out to the audience saying, there's a scripture in here that says this. And then several audience members were looking for it. Because he wasn't, it didn't have to be all him. Because it was about God. He was reaching out and some of the members would, would find it first and point it out to him. And then he let them read it. Why? Because God's truth stands firm. Like a foundation of stone and nothing can shake us. We need to be that sure of ourselves. And no matter who we're with, they can throw anything at us. We don't need to know everything. We just need to know that it's there. We can rely on each other, like Pastor Ramakan did, and we can reach out. But we don't need to be shaken by stuff that sounds, you're not quite sure about it, and you know, I don't have the answer in my head, and I'm going to be embarrassed by this. We don't need to, we don't need to feel that way. Finally, what about folks who claim a special calling from God with a message given only to them? Let's go to John chapter 10. Let's go to John chapter 10. And again, I'm not saying that that will never happen. I, I don't have the authority to say that. I'm just a guy like you trying to get through this life and make it into God's kingdom. But there are people who claim special callings. Three times in John chapter 10, Christ says the following. Verse 4. Let's go, well, let's start in verse 1. we got some time. Most assuredly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. This thief does not come except to steal, and to kill and to destroy. I have come, that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. 
and I know my sheep, and are known by my own. So uh, drop down now to verse 22. Later on, this John 10 that we read, that was in the, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is now in the winter. It was the Feast of Dedication, verse 22, and it was winter. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and they know my voice, and they follow. What does that have to do with determining what well, when we hear things that people have a special calling, or somebody has heard this directly from God? They hear and they know. Hear means to come to the ears, that you actually just physically heard it. That's, that's the meaning of that Greek word. To know means you not just heard it, but you understood it, you're sure, you beheld it, and you perceived it. So you heard, you physically heard it, and you understand. Christ assures us that his sheep will physically hear his voice and perceive what he is saying. And that is important. There's no explanation of how we know. But we know that we will know. So that if somebody says, if we are his sheep, if we are staying close to God in prayer and Bible study, following him and staying in a close relationship with each other, and someone says something, we'll know. Because we will hear his voice. If it is time to flee to a place of safety, we will know. But it won't be, I'm not sure about that. I don't know how we're going to know, I can't say. I just read three times here, that we'll know. That we will know his voice. If we are his sheep, true, faithful, and following him, we will know with what, with that, what we are hearing, whether it is from God or it is not. We've also got his holy written word here to cross-reference with what we hear. If we cannot back it up with what we hear in Scripture, then we need to think carefully before we believe it. This world continues to change. We saw last week, we've gone from pre-modern to modern to post-modern. It is scary to think of all the changes that have taken place since I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, those of you who were kids in the 50s and the 60s, and even the 80s. It is scary to think what life is like today. Who knows what evil lies ahead? Who knows what brand of philosophy is being formed in the minds of the next generation of thinkers? We think postmodernism is as, as evil as it can get. I don't know. Who knows? Well, who knows what is beyond the horizon? And kids, I'm sorry this world is the way it is that we're leaving this with you. That you're coming into this world that is beyond crazy, beyond evil. But what is most important has never, ever changed. When God speaks, it is truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word stands firm like a rock. And you can bet your life on that.